A few years ago, we went to the Holy Land, and when we left uh, Detroit, it was winter time. It was still March, but it was winter, and it was cold. It was bitter cold, and we hadn't seen a hint of spring. And then we landed in Tel Aviv, and it was springtime in Israel. And we took the bus north up to uh, Haifa, and we stayed in a Carmelite nunnery. And when we got up in the morning, we looked out over the Mediterranean, and the, the whole Holy Land was just bursting with springtime. There were just flowers and tr- blossoming trees and green grass. And the north of Israel is a very, very beautiful, hilly country. And, and it, was, it was the prettiest springtime that I have ever seen. And we would uh, go up on the mountain, Mount Arabel, that looks over the Sea of Galilee, and the grass had grown high and green, and you could just see the fields growing beneath. It was beautiful. It was springtime in Israel. And then we flew back to Detroit, and it was still winter. <laughs> it was real winter. It was cold and snowy and icy and miserable. In the providence of God that year, I had uh, opportunity to preach in Texas. And I, a couple, about a week later, I, I flew to Texas. And it was springtime in Texas. And it was a beautiful springtime in Texas. It was just warm. And the flowers, there are oak trees in Texas that never lose their leaves. Living oaks. Isn't that amazing? And uh, I had a lot of pressure to speak at this conference, this convention, a bunch of pressure, a bunch of talks to give. And Finally, when I had given my last talk, I had a real nice house, speaker's quarters that I was being housed in, and there was a porch, and I remember just the relief of being done with my talks and thinking, okay, wow, now my flight doesn't go out for a while. I think I will go sit on the porch, and I, I took a chair, and I drug it out on the porch, and I couldn't believe how beautiful it was in Texas in the springtime. It was so warm, and the leaves were all out, and birds were in the trees singing and then the next day i flew back to detroit <laughs> it was still winter i remember i stood up and i said to the people you you, you got to take this on faith but i have seen springtime this year already two times and when it gets here you are gonna love it and don't you love springtime and the truth that i have been privileged to talk to you about in the last few weeks and, and today I promise you it will bring springtime to your soul because this is the truth of God about how to walk in fellowship with God, how to sin less and and to live a holy life. And these are the promises of God from the Bible. They just warm your soul. They bring beauty and freshness and spring down your soul. How many of you could use a little springtime in your soul right now? Good. So let me just review. We're talking about five tools to craft a holy life. The series ends next week. It culminates next week. It's almost like next week is the key to unlock everything. You never want to miss a single service here. Are you with me? But especially next week, because next week is the key that unlocks the whole thing. You could actually, in the flesh, you could do all the things we've been talking about, And the thing next week, if it's not true about you, it could all be for nothing. You don't want to miss the message next week. It'll help you. It'll be a blessing to you. Now, 
But today, we're going to talk about this fourth of the five powerful tools to craft a holy life. But, but let's review. These are the ways, these are some of the ways to bring, you know, great springtime uh, to your soul. First, the first tool that we talked about to craft a holy life is pray. Thank you for being so far ahead. You're ready. You're ready this week. All the different kinds of prayer. And a Christian, you, you know that if you've been walking with the Lord for years, you've explored a lot of different kinds of prayer. The Bible is full of all kinds of different kinds of prayer. There's, prayer, there are, there's a kind of prayer, for instance, that you pray when you have arthritis that you know nothing about when you're a child, unless you have childhood arthritis, right? All right? In the nighttime, when you don't plan to be awake, but you're awake because of pain, and you can't really think, but you can pray. Or there's the desperate prayer when someone you love maybe is hurt or, or in trouble or confused or far from God. And there's a, there's a prayer that boils out of the depths of your soul. It's unlike anything you could have thought you would pray when you were a little child. There are spontaneous prayers that happen when you see the first daffodils of spring and you go, there they are again, God. Thank you, I love you for that. Next year, i got to remember to put daffodils in. There's a, there are desperate prayers. There are prayers of confession. And, and probably to fight against sin, one of the most powerful kinds of prayer is an immediate prayer of confession and acknowledging your sin, admitting who you are, and being honest with God. You're never going to grow you're never going to have springtime in your soul. If you aren't pretty good at that, admitting when you're wrong, that's a powerful way to craft a holy life, is to be a person of prayer. And for prayer not to be a duty to you, but to be a sweet resource to you as you want to walk with the Lord. Another tool that you can use to craft a holy life, not only prayer, but pray and obey. Simple obedience, spirit-inspired, spirit-empowered repeated obedience another way of saying that is to say to walk in the spirit the spirit inspires you gives you an impulse you obey that spiritual impulse he empowers that spiritual impulse and the good that comes from that is the fruit of the holy spirit good stuff grows in the lives of people who learn that when god says something to you obey and and that's another that's another one now yes last week we talked about remember this thing where we said we said jesus and daily truth equals life. Jesus and daily truth equals, I'm going to try to help you stay awake today. Jesus said out loud, and daily truth equals life. And Satan and daily lies equal, that's what we talked about last week. Now, now this week, as I was studying again, I stumbled on a passage that I love very much that uh, informs my kind of pastoral ethic, the way I think about being a pastor, is a passage in 2 Timothy, and it says, the servant of the Lord, you know, shouldn't be involved in like quarrels and empty arguments. Servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle to all men and meekly instructing people. And the idea there is if you do that, maybe they will, maybe they'll be granted the gift of repentance and maybe they will escape the snare of the devil. I mean, this is the way I would like to live my life. I would like to help people by being really gentle and, and help people to get out of the devil's trap. Listen to what it says, though. I left a phrase out that I didn't really pay a lot of attention to until it hit me this week after I had talked about meditation on truth and the power. How do you get out of the devil's trap? If you're in the devil's trap, well, you have to have the gift of repentance, the change of mind and heart and soul and so forth. 
But listen to what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to what? The knowledge of truth. There it is. See what I'm saying? And they would escape the snare of the devil after he's taken them captive to do his will. That's some pretty heavy language. You don't want to be in a demonic trap to do what he wants, so you want light to dawn on your heart and mind, truth, so that you get the gift of repentance and you escape the snare of the devil. These are just some of the tools that you can use to fight against sin. These are some of the weapons to fight against sin. These are some of the tools to build a holy life. These are some of the tools to craft a holy life. And we want to be good at the use of these tools. If, we're not, if we have them but we don't use them, they won't do us any good. How many of you men love um, high-quality cordless tools? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Yes. How many of you would like to have more and better and more powerful, high-powered, well-made cordless tools how many of you walk around Lowe's salivating thinking if i could just have a more powerful cordless drill then my life would be happy i'm not that guy i do that at the bookstore so the guys in the church when i'm working with them and they're fixing something they know this and they're like pastor let me give you something you won't hurt yourself with then i was working on the church one day and they were looking around like they needed to give me a job and I was incompetent with that stuff. And one of the guys says to me, here, take this cordless drill and just go hang those little signs on the front of the building. And I'm like, yeah, who couldn't do that? You know, a girl could do that. <laughs> and so I go outside. That's kidding, ladies. I go outside and I take these uh, signs and I go and put them in. And I can't drill. I can't get the screw to turn. I'm like, what in the world? The thing is going, it's like, and it won't go. And I'm like, man, this is hard wood. Finally, a real merciful guy in the church comes out and he goes, Pastor, how you doing? I'm going, I'm not, not doing very good. The wood is really hard. He goes, let me see that drill. And he takes it and he goes, click, and he hands it back to me. And he says, it works better on forward. <laughs> and then it's like, zip, zip. Like, those things are cool. You got, it's not enough to have a power tool, right? It's important that you know how to use a power tool. You don't make a fool of yourself that way. Waste your money. I'm giving you power tools. How many of them have you used? And how good are you at using them? They will work. They are power tools. Now let me tell you the other, another one today, the fourth, the fifth will be uh, next week. And we, said, we already said it, and, and the key text that we're going to preach from today, where we're gonna, the passage in the Bible we're, that we're going to use to explain this, there are passages all over the Bible that teach this, but the, the one that we want to look at today is my favorite Bible verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. And what we're going to say from 2 Corinthians 3 and, and verse 18 is the, the scripture says here, we all with an unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, and this is the work of the Spirit of the Lord. Or, and I've memorized this in two or three verses, and I just mixed them together the way I like them. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror 
the glory of the Lord are being transformed from one level of glory to another. And this is the work of the Spirit of the Lord. And I want to tell you four things from this so that you can be good at using the power tool of worship to defeat sin in your life and to help to craft a holy life. Point number one, you were made to admire God. We sang it, we sang it in our songs today. You were created to admire God. You were created to worship God, in other words. In other words, the, you were made this way, that the deepest part of you that God created would, would admire God for all that he is. And we see him especially in the person of Jesus Christ. You were made for this. You were created for this. You were created to admire God. Now, how do we get this? In, in the context of, of 1 Corinthians 3, as a little aside, Paul is writing the Corinthian letter, and he talks about a little knot he ran into, a little knot in the wood he ran into, and then he goes off on this gorgeous kind of parenthesis, which is, chapter 3 is in this, in which he's talking about the power of ministry. And here's what he kind of says, to paraphrase it. He says, you know, we have the law, and the law reveals God. The law has the ability to reveal God. And the way he puts it is the law reveals God or the law reveals the glory of God. The essence, the beauty of all that God is in in the vast different aspects of his character is his glory. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But God reveals himself, his glory, who he is. And And the law reveals the glory of God. And the law beautifully reveals the glory of God. And that's why... In the Old Testament, you often hear David saying, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation day and night. It's like, I'm looking in your face, God, and I like what I see. That's what he's saying. Now, now Paul says this. He says, remember when the, we had the ministry of the law? The, when, when what we taught was the law, and we had the Old Testament, which reveals the law. Often is a word for the Old Testament, the law. He says, and now we've come along, and, we, and we've added to the law the gospel. And he says in chapter 3, I'm paraphrasing chapter 3 right now. In chapter 3 he says the, the, the law had a glory or the law had an ability to show us what God is like and satisfy the hunger of our soul. He said that if the law had a glory, the, 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 the gospel, the truth about Jesus, has so great, so, such a greater glory that it almost looks, makes the law look dark in comparison. And this is kind of what he's saying there in chapter 3. When he gets to verse, um, you see this a lot. It'd be interesting for you to go through chapter 3 and mark everywhere it says glory. I'm going to just read from verse 7 on. Now, if the ministry of death, he's talking about the law, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory, there it is, right, that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. In other words, the law reveals what God is like, right? The glory of God, the essence of his character the beauty of his honesty his justice his love his power his might his mercy his goodness everything that we love about god that's displayed that's his glory and he's saying the law displays the glory of god get it and then he says in verse um in verse six who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant not of the letter but the spirit for the letter kills the spirit gives life i just read verse six now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the israelites could not gaze on moses face because of its glory which is bring, being brought to the, to an end will not the ministry of the spirit have more glory he's using the phrase the ministry of the spirit to refer to the full gospel message that we have in the story of jesus 
And this has even a greater glory. It even shows us more about God's beauty and magnetism. And oh, you, you tracking with me? In, in the ministry of condemnation of the law, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For, for if what has been brought to an end, the law, came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. And since we have this hope, Paul says, we're very bold. But he's saying, in my ministry, we, when we taught the law, it had the power of God, the glory of God on it. It had the ability to reveal who God is, which is changes people and transforms people. But now we like, have power tools. We have the gospel. We're looking into the very face of Jesus for who he is. And this has the ability to change people, transform them, change them inside out. So Paul says, so because of this, we're very bold. Right? Like, like if you have a BB gun, and I have an assault rifle, and I don't, just, just saying. But if you have a BB gun and I have an assault rifle, you're just amusing me. You're not frightening me at all. You're just amusing me. You see what I'm saying? It's a bad illustration, isn't it? Y'all looking at me like, oh. Wow, sorry. You can't win all the time, I guess, yeah. Maybe I should quote somebody else. John Piper, he gets this. His books are full of this. He says this, the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. I like that. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and the greatness of God's manifold or many perfections. Now, what, is, what do you call it when a person admires God's glory or his manifold per- perfections. What do you call that? What do you, yeah, it's called worship. That's what it's called. There's a name for that. It's called worship. It's not just singing songs, though we do it. I do it. I love music, so I'm doing it when I'm singing songs. But it's also when the first daffodils of spring open and when my little grandbaby comes and visits and she's trying to say words and walk and mess with her daddy while he's playing the guitar and i'm saying god you're so kind and you're so good how did you make such a little being that looks kind of like her daddy and kind of like my wife and kind of like her mom and she's learning to talk this is like i'm worshiping god because i have the good sense to know god created this little being when people gather in the pews on Sunday morning and they lift their hearts up to God and you hear their voices singing and certainly that your heart is recognizes the goodness of God, the character of God, the qualities of God, the manifold perfections of God, the palette of the colors of who God is. Earl Radmacher, who I understand preached here. You must have invited him. No? Anyway, Earl Radmacher, we'll talk about that later. Earl Radmacher, he said... He said this, right living begins with right thinking about God. Uh, Right thinking. I'm sorry. Right living begins with right thinking, and right thinking begins with right thinking about God. So you're not living right until you're thinking right. You're not thinking right until you're thinking right about God. And thinking right about God is worship, is admiration for God. Am I making any sense here? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, isn't it? Okay, let me give you maybe an earthy illustration that might help help you. I'm up north, I'm speaking at a camp, and I, I decide I want to have my devotions out on the lake in a canoe. And so I get up super early, and I think when the, when the sun is just starting to rise, I want to be out on the lake in a canoe with my little New Testament. And so it worked out beautifully. I paddled out on this glassy lake, and the sun just started to peek through the pines on the top of the hill. And when I get out in the middle of this glassy lake, and I open up my Bible to the Psalms, Right at the same time that I'm reading the psalm, I notice that the moon has not yet disappeared from the sky. 
It's still just faithfully up there reflecting the beauty of the sun. And I look down at the Psalms, and God says about the moon that the moon is his faithful witness in the sky. Is that beautiful poetry? The moon, my faithful witness in the sky. And my heart says, God, I want to so look on you, admire you, think about you, that I glow with a likeness to you. Right? So you're created to admire God. Now, let me give you a, another biblical passage, and we could do this a lot. Look in Psalm 16 if you're, if you're quick. Psalm 16 is an example, and the Bible is so full of examples of this. I'll just read this one from Psalm 16, um, uh, in verse 7. I, I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Get it? That's the behold from the 2 Corinthians passage. I'm looking on him with the gaze of the soul. I'm concentrating on who God is. My deepest part of me is admiring God thinking about God. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices and my flesh also dwells secure. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever because I set the Lord always before me. I'm always conscious of his beauty and perfections of his character uh and and that's what we're talking about here psalm 16 so number one you are created to admire god number two when you admire god it has a transformational effect on you this is pretty awesome notice what the passage says verse 18 second corinthians 3 and we all with unveiled face behold the glory of god we concentrate on the beauties of who god is and then it says, are being transformed into the same image. That is just shockingly awesome and good that this verse is in the Bible. That it so clearly expresses how I can be more and more like God, more and more like Jesus, more and more, more and more patient and more and more kind and more and more pure and, and more and more merciful and more and more just in my own heart. That's amazing that we're given this truth we're created to admire god the deepest part of us admiring him and when we admire god it changes us it transforms us from the inside out the name of that admiration is what worship worship when the deepest part of you thinks high and holy thoughts about who god is in whatever context you find them. it could be in creation it could be in trouble it could be in confusion it could be do you realize this? You're troubled, right? You're troubled. You have troubles. I've been around long enough to know everybody has troubles. You realize that we're actually more likely to see the beauty and the perfection of God in our ugliness and imperfection. You ever think about that? We're actually more likely to throw ourselves down at the feet of God when there's brokenness in our life. We're more likely to see the beauty of the moon and the sun in the darkness of our world, right? The darker the night, the brighter the light shines. You say, well, I got troubles in my heart, in my life, in my world, in my family. I got pain and difficulty and confusion. It's like, look to him, behold him, be thou my vision, gaze on God, 
admire God, worship God, the deepest part of you. You, there's a, there's a, there's a law in the, in the universe that, that God created. It's a natural law that we tend to become like what we admire. I hate this. When I go hear a preacher I like a lot, and then the next week I have gestures that he did that are in me, and I'm like, well, I, I can't believe I'm doing that. It's like I admire this guy so much, I, I'm talking like him. Uh, this is the way God made us. It's how we learned the English language, right? From our folks who, they didn't do grammar and syntax and sentence diagrams, thanks be unto God. They just said, say, dad, 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 right? That's how that worked. And you learned that way. And, and because you, 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 you mimic them, right? And wh- whatever we admire, we become more and more like in the natural. The Bible is saying here, it's true in the supernatural. So you become like whatever your God is. Are you tracking with me? You become like whatever you admire. You become more like whatever you admire, but you're made to become like God in a mighty work of the Holy Spirit happening in you as you worship or admire God from the deepest part of you. I hope that's making sense. We become like, this is, we become like what we worship, good or bad. Uh, Psalm 135, 15 through 18 says, the idols of the nations are silver and gold. They are the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. And those who make them become like them. Dumb. So do all who trust in them, is what it says there in that psalm. And this is the ultimate goal there in our Christian lives. You know, in Romans 8, 28, we often will quote that. All things work together for good to those who love God. And, the, and when you finish that out and you study it, you see exactly how things work together for good. Primarily, that the things that happen to those who love God are helping to conform us to the icon, to the image of God, to be like Jesus. This is the, the, the essence of how Romans 8.28 works. It's not just, oh, I, I you know... My boat burned. I guess God's going to, I'll pray it's good. God's going to give me a bigger boat. Not always. Not always. You might have hardship, but to be conformed to the image of his son, this transformation is a great goal that God desires for us and we should desire too. So point number one to study this passage is we're created to admire God. And point number two is when we do that, it changes us into his image, more like him. This is beautiful. This is a power tool. Tim Keller said this, I thought it was helpful how he said this, if you go through religious and moral behaviors without a ravaging sense of beauty or joy or delight or satisfaction, it's not worship. That's powerful, isn't it? Let me repeat that. If you go through religious or moral behaviors without a ravaging sense of beauty or joy or delight or satisfaction, there's no worship in that. It's not worship. If you you keep all the rules, but there's no sense of admiration for God and love and affection for God in it. If you do a bunch of busy religious work or sing religious songs or read religious stuff, but there's no like spontaneous ignition in your soul upward to God, it's not worship. And then he says, life transformation comes from an inventory of the excellencies of God. Now, this is a wordy guy, but you get it, right? If you want to be changed, he says, an inventory of the excellencies of God. That might need not be how you would say that at the water cooler, right? An inventory of the excellencies of God. Lois, you wouldn't say it that way, would you? That's not the kind of language you would use. But she might look out the window when she's frying my egg in the morning, 
and see that little bird on the feeder and go, hasn't God been good to us? And her little catch in her voice tells me something's going on that's deeper than just she thinks the bird is pretty. She knows that God made that bird and sent him to our back porch that morning. And now, when I'm going through frying my egg with a, with a heart sense of the... And then when I smell the eggs and the sausage frying, that's what happens to me. Of course, when I eat in moderation, you know. That's what Tim Keller said. Isn't that good? Life transformation comes from an inventory of the excellencies of God. You say, God, you're merciful. God, you're kind. You're always going to keep your promises. And the inside is rising up to God. You're worshiping and you're being changed. That's awesome right there. You're being changed into what he's like. No worship, no change. Little worship, little change. Deeper worship, deeper change. This should make you hungry to worship. Am I right? Let me say it in a, in a really earthy way. Okay, so I, I married Lois. She's from the mountains of Kentucky. I'm so glad about that for a lot of reasons. Kids are cute, you know. That's totally her. Um, that, that was a joke. You guys should have helped me on that one a little bit. So, sorry. They, but also, one of the things about is we get to go down to eastern Kentucky. So I went to my grandpa's farm for 18 years, and he sold it. But I've been going down to the mountains of eastern Kentucky for almost 40 years now. And when you drive into those mountains, you want it to be daylight, I'm telling you. Lois is like a procrastinator. And so she's always like, well, I'm going to go to Kentucky today. And I'm like, leave already. You won't be in the mountains in the light. You'll be in the mountains in the darkness. I always tell her, you don't want to get in the mountains in the darkness. You want to get there when the light is shining. So you can enjoy those little mountains, those mountains that you love so much when you're a little girl. I'm always preaching to her, get going now so that when you get down there, you can enjoy the mountains. And when I preached last year, about this time of the year, down the mountains of eastern Kentucky, the dogwoods were opening, and the red buds were opening, and there was just like sweet beauty in the mountains there. And I just drove my red Jeep slow everywhere I went, savoring the beautiful winding roads of eastern Kentucky and the creeks that ran through the bottoms and the birds that flew overhead and the fragrance of springtime in the air. You're an idiot if you drive fast through the mountains slow down where are you going slow down preached in the mountains of kentucky a couple three times last summer remember the last time i was driving out my heart was just so tender with love for those kids that were down there and i was i hated to leave them they'd been so sweet they'd open their hearts so much and it was so beautiful to be down there it's such a beautiful place and of course i always think about lois she wasn't with me and i was thinking about her as i got in my jeep and i i drove out of the mountains down in there by uh, uh Beatyville. I remember thinking, well, in about 30 minutes, I'm going to be back on 75. And I-75 looks the same anywhere in the world you drive on it, right? Almost. And so I thought, I'm going to drive slow. How foolish would it be for a person to rush through the mountains of God and never pay attention to who he is and what he's like and never smell his fragrance or enjoy his beauty or listen to his wisdom? Rushing through the mountains of God like a fool will not change you. But to slow your life down and to drink in the mountains of God. Now that will change you. I have a friend, Keith Drury. He's, he, he gets this. And he said he wanted to go to the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. And he wanted to ride, he wanted to go th- down the, um, 
what is that, for the Blue Ridge Parkway. And so what he did is he rented a scooter, <laughs> a little scooter, and he, and, he, and he went the length of the Blue Ridge Parkway on a scooter so that he could smell the smells and hear the sounds, and he didn't, he didn't rush through the mountains of God. And that's what I'm trying to say here, and that's what Paul is getting at. Gaze on the beauties and perfections of God, which are greater than the mountains that he made. And that will change you inside out miraculously. It will change you. And the more you do it, the more it will change you. Isn't that powerful? A girl asked me once after I preached, she came up to me and she said, how can I have a deeper passion for God? Well, I had been reading a book. I'll quote this book to you. This is what I showed her this. Here's what the writer said. There must be another path to know the real Jesus other than by rigorous academic historical research, which is okay, by the way. But there is another path. Not everyone is an academic, right? He said this. It starts with the conviction. How do you know God? How do you have a passion for God? He said, it starts with the conviction that divine truth can be self-authenticating. In fact, it would seem strange if God revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ, and inspired the record of that revelation in the Bible, but he didn't provide a way for ordinary people to know it. Stated most simply, the common path to sure knowledge of the real Jesus is this. Jesus, as he's revealed in the Bible, has a glory, an excellence, a spiritual beauty that can be seen as self-evidently true. It's like seeing the sun and knowing that it's light, not dark, or tasting honey and knowing that it's sweet. When we see Jesus for who he really is, we savor him. That is, we delight in him as true and beautiful and satisfying. Christ is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. And when we're satisfied in him, we're crucified to the world. And this way, seeing and savoring Jesus will multiply the mirrors of his presence in the world. John Piper says in his wonderful little devotional book called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. Look at him, taste him. And he will be self-evidently bright and sweet and beautiful. And you will find that you're being transformed. This is a powerful thing to realize. This is what this passage is saying. We all, with an open face now, since we know the Lord, we can gaze on who he is. And that changes us. In, a, in, a book, in another book by Piper, Hunger for God, he wrote this, it helped me. He's talking about fasting. And he says, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because you've drunk deeply and you're satisfied. It's because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world that your soul is stuffed with small things and there's no room for the great. God did not create you for this. There is an appetite for God. And this appetite for God can be awakened. And I invite you to... Um, step away from the dulling effects of food, the dangers of idolatry, and say with a simple fast, this much, oh God, is how I want you. And this can be applied to, to things beyond eating. You get that, right? Worship when you're tempted. That's what I'm saying. When you're tempted, worship. When you're tempted, worship. Because worship is a great way to craft a holy life and, and, and look into the face of Jesus. Now, now, now two more short things. Um, that, that bring this into, uh, they're, they're powerful helps. When you're thinking about this, you, you, you heard me say worship is what you're made for and worship changes you. But, but he adds two more things that are, that are almost like answering the questions that we ask. And that is like the one question I want to ask is, so when is this going to happen and how quick is it? Because I like that instant holiness thing. You know, can we just like, can we make, can you get this out of the way easy? Can we make this quick and easy, Lord? And he's like, nope. 
It's from one level of glory to another. It's a gradual process. Transformation is a gradual process. And you can, may come from a background that talks about a crisis of holiness, and I respect that because God does that too. God can like give you a forward thrust of sanctification in a moment because he's God and he's sovereign. And when he does that, give him praise, give him glory. That's awesome. I, I've had it happen to me. I want it to happen again. But basically, the Bible says that the transformation is from one level of glory to another. It's a process. So in other words, I guess I would say it this way. It doesn't happen overnight. But I would also say this. But it should happen. Like, you just want to go, don't want to just grow old and narrow-minded and mean and crabby and have the same sin struggles that you've always had and not get sweeter and not get more like Jesus? How sad would that be? I heard an evangelist one day from down in Tennessee. He said, when I'm getting older, and I'm losing my hair, and I might be losing my memory. He goes, but I'm not really so worried about that. I'm not worried about getting bald, he said. And he said, I'm not worried about going out in the parking lot at Kmart and not being able to find where I left my car. He said, here's what I'm worried about. I'm worried about growing old and being a crabby old man that's no more like Jesus than I was when I was 30 years old. That's what I'm worried about. That's what you should be worried about too. Yes, change is a gradual process, but it should be happening, and it will be happening if we're worshiping the Lord. Are you getting older? Yes. Are you getting better? You should be. Kind of interesting, isn't it? I, I, I was at, a few, maybe a couple years ago, I, I was at my study, and I happened to notice on Facebook that a parishioner from First Baptist Church in Fremont, where I used to pastor, was going to have a surgery at U of M Hospital, which I frequently visited for prisoners in the Downriver. And when I noticed that, the one thing I remembered was that I had hurt these people a bit. I was kind of gung-ho on homeschooling. We, we homeschooled, so I was really gung-ho about it. And when I was the pastor there, I know that I made them feel like they maybe didn't quite measure up. And then God took me through some humbling. And then I realized that I had hurt them. And I thought about her having that surgery, and I thought, well, maybe I ought to ask if I can go visit her. And so I called and said, can I come visit you? And they said yes. And in, in the sweetness of God, all four of their grown children were there for mom's surgery, and husband was there, and they're all there waiting for that surgery. And then I came in, had a minute to say, hey, I, I love you, and I'm, I want to tell you that when I was your pastor, I think I hurt your feelings. And uh, kind of acting like holier than thou a little bit, and, you, and I feel like I hurt your feelings, and, and I realized that was really wrong, and I really am sorry. And it was such a sweet thing. I mean, they were so kind about that. And all the adult kids that, you know, track with me, right? Their kids had grown up to love the Lord, right? Those kids that I was afraid for my kids to hang out with loved the same Jesus my kids loved. Are you with me? Really loved him. And they were willing to forgive me. They were really kind grown-up kids who were very, you know, they were socially very intuitive and very kind. They locked eyes. I'm like, it's okay, Pastor. We love you. It's a sweet thing to keep growing. It's a good thing not to be a stubborn old man set in your ways. Deliver us from that stuff. Make us tenderhearted, kind and sweet, like Jesus. The other thing is this. It's a gradual process, but it's a supernatural work. You notice the last phrase is, and this is the work of the Spirit of the Lord. I should be, you should say amen right there. Yeah, amen. I used to go to camp, and I was in camp one time to speak, and I was thinking about my little talks that I was going to give, and a kid walks up. He's, he's, he's a kid that works with the guy who um, invited me to speak, and the kid says, 
never forget this. He says, dude, you should have seen the speaker last week. He rode in here on a skateboard and he ollied the altar and he landed right there. I'm like, dude, that sounds dangerous. You know? Kids were hanging on his every word. He had contact explosives. When he talked about calling down fire out of heaven, boom, there was fire. I'm like, I bet that guy had hair too. And then I was thinking, oh my goodness, now I got to speak 10 times. And I don't have a skateboard. And if I did, I'd probably hurt myself really bad. And, and I, I never was cool. And, and I don't have any explosives. And sure enough, the first talk was just sort of flat. The kids were looking at me like, and they weren't laughing at the right times, you know. They weren't crying at the right times. They weren't paying attention sometimes. So you know what I did? I do this all the time now. I go, okay, Lord, this is not going to work unless you help me. He's like, yeah. <laughs> and I go and I get on my knees, my Bible, and I, I say, God, I've got a bunch of kids. I want to help them this week. Would you empower this, please? And he does, even without a skateboard, even without hair, <laughs> even, without, even without explosives. And he'll empower you, too. Even if you're weak and even if you failed before, he's interested. He's involved in your pursuit of holiness. It's a beautiful thing. I was up there at that camp, and I have a picture of what this looks like in it rained all week, <laughs> and I, and I kind of missed. I never walked down the lake because it rained all week, and I never, I never really got outside and took a hike because it rained all week, and that year, I had to hurry back on Saturday night because I was going to preach on Saturday morning, so chapel on Saturday night, just before chapel on Saturday night, maybe about 40 minutes before chapel, the, the rain lifted and the sun came out, and I thought, wow, I think I'm going to go walk down there to the lake and just look at the lake one time because in an hour or so i got to go home, and I won't get to come back here for another year and look at this lake. Never forget that night, because I didn't realize I wasn't going to be down there alone. God was going to go with me that day in a very real way. As I walked down that path that I'd walked so many times through the pines, the you know, raindrops were clinging to the pines. There was a fragrance, and there was light in those raindrops, and I just felt a sense of the presence of the Lord, you know, and how good he'd been to me. So I started to pray out loud, and I walked up on a little hill and I looked out over the lake. There's a chapel and a camp on the other side of the lake. And the way they do it, the older kids, I was speaking to them, and my chapel started, I think, at 9.30, but their chapel started at 9, or, or it, was, it was earlier, but then it was a half hour earlier. And so as I stood there quietly with my hands uplifted to God, just praying and telling them how grateful I was to him, all of a sudden, I could hear the kids on the other side of the lake singing their songs that they've been singing all week long. And there's just no, there's nothing in a world like that. Hear those little voices singing those songs, those little hearts just opened up and singing. I stood there with tears on my face and thought, God, that's so beautiful. And the Lord knows I love singing and hearing little voices, but he also knows I love the call of the loon. And so he arranged that as soon as that sound died down, the chapel bell rings, the kids sing, as soon as the sound dies down, the loons start calling up on Shamrock Lake. It was almost like going, hey, Ken, you know, you're a jerk, but you're my jerk, right? And I love you. I love you. That's transformational. That changes us from the inside out. And the more we love him, the more we admire him, the more we worship him, the more like him we become. There are experiences of God 
you could have that you have not had yet. There's a height of joy in God that you could have that you haven't experienced yet. There's a satisfaction in worship that you could have that you have not experienced yet. There's a level of glory that you can enjoy that you have never experienced yet, but you can. Stand with us as we talk, sing, God, you capture my heart and my vision. Let's sing that before we go.